If you love short stories, but wish that the literary canon were more inclusive, check out Likewise Fiction, a new podcast celebrating diverse fiction. On Likewise Fiction, host Mike Sakasagawa reads outstanding short stories written by women and non-binary authors, authors of color, and LGBTQIA authors. Season 1 launched in October and includes stories by Celeste Ng, Chaya Bhuvaneswar, Rachel Lyon, Alvin Park, and more. New episodes post every other Monday, so subscribe to Likewise Fiction in your favorite podcast app or visit likewisefiction.com for more information about the show. Today's episode is with the poet C.A. Conrad. C.A. and I corresponded for many months leading up to this conversation. While they were traveling from city to city in the U.S. and abroad, we were brainstorming what we wanted this conversation to look like and ultimately decided to center it on not their last published book, though we do discuss it, but on their current in-progress poetry project, Resurrect Extinct Vibration, in the new poems that they are writing right now using this elaborate somatic poetry ritual. We also talked a lot about Ursula K. Le Guin, for I was heading off to Dublin, where the book Ursula and I had written together was up for a Hugo Award, and C.A. was off to Scotland to be part of the celebration and commemoration of the 50th anniversary of Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness. The 50th anniversary of Left Hand of Darkness also coincides with C.A.'s 35th anniversary of choosing a genderless name. And what arose from their collaboration with the project in Scotland was a three-part essay called Memories of Why I Stopped Being a Man. Each part beginning with a quote from Le Guin, followed by Conrad's thoughts and essay form, followed by a poem. This new Ursula Le Guin-inspired piece, Memories of Why I Stopped Being a Man, generously joins the bonus audio archive. And I say generously because C.A. and I talked for a good two hours in the main program, and then they still suggested they read this essay and poetry tribute to Ursula once we were all done. If you want to learn more about subscribing to the bonus audio archive or discover the various Tin House goodies and rewards available for patrons of the show, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers or at tinhouse.com slash support. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. 
Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet C.A. Conrad. Conrad is the author of nine books of poetry and essays, including A Beautiful Marsupial Afternoon, The Book of Frank, which won the Gil Ott Book Award, Eco Deviance, finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and winner of the Believer Poetry Award, and most recently, While Standing in Line for Death, winner of a 2018 Lambda Literary Award. Conrad is also co-editor of Supplication, Selected Poems of John Wieners, a recipient of a Pew Fellowship in the Arts, and teaches regularly at Columbia University and at the Sandberg Art Institute in Amsterdam. C.A. Conrad is the subject of the documentary The Book of Conrad, which documents their attempts to uncover the events around their boyfriend's murder, a brutal hate crime that was covered up by the local police as suicide and Conrad's subsequent attempts to recover from an intractable depression through a series of poetry rituals. Conrad is one of the world's foremost practitioners of ritual-based poetry, what they call somatic poetry ritual. They are currently a 2019 Creative Capital Fellow, where they are working on a project called Resurrect Extinct Vibration, a somatic poetry ritual in nine maneuvers that will result in 108 poems. C.A. Conrad is also a Reiki practitioner and a tarot reader and host of the new podcast, Occult Poetry Radio. And they're here in Portland for the Art and Environmental Justice Graduate Symposium at the new Low Residency MFA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Publishers Weekly says of C.A. Conrad that few, if any, American poets are doing more visionary, disorienting, and wonderful work today. U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith says, C.A. Conrad's poems invite the reader to become an agent in a joint act of recovery, to step outside of passivity and propriety, and to become susceptible to the illogical and the mysterious. Eileen Miles says, in Conrad's world, the parameters are unknowable because that is the scary and real nature of our time. C.A. Conrad includes us all in the enormous outside of their heart, which is the world in all its possibility. Miles also says C.A. Conrad always argues from the inside of their poems for a poetry of radical inclusivity while keeping a very queer shoulder to the wheel. Their kind of queerness strikes me as non-polarizing, not intentionally, but because of the fullness of their exposition, a kind of gigantism that seems to me to be most deeply informed by love and a tenderness for the ravages and tumult of existence. Welcome to Between the Covers, C.A. Conrad. Thank you so much for having me, David. So your 2012 poetry collection, A Beautiful Marsupial Afternoon, it opens with an essay called The Right to Manifest Manifesto, which is an introduction to the somatic poetry exercises. Whenever you write the word somatic, you put the word soma in parentheses. And in this essay, you break down the word somatic as a way to sort of reveal what you're aiming at in a somatic ritual. So I was hoping maybe we could start with those words, soma and somatic, and what, what, is, what we're um, engaging with when we're engaging in a somatic poetry ritual in that regard. Well, what I really love about the word somatic, when we look at the full word, it's Greek. 
And that talks about the body's nervous system, the physical flesh, the body's cavity, which in a way is also talking about absence, which I love. But soma, which lives inside the word somatic, is an older word, and it comes from India. Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary, I believe, incorrectly says this Indo-Persian. That's probably due to the fact that by the time the English arrive in India, India had already had a very long-standing relationship with ancient Persia on trade routes. So that's what they're referring to. But if you look at the first book, the Rig Vedic, the Vedic texts in India, that's where you see a Soma. Soma originally meant to press and be newly born. What that was, they were basically juicing plants, psychedelic plants with energizing mm-hmm. plants, like wheatgrass and salvia. Not saying that that's what they were doing. I'm just saying by example. And then this liquid that they would drink would then have them lead to spiritual awakenings, uh, epiphanies. So this finds its way in ancient Persia. And then, of course, you have the Sufis using it. Soma then goes on to mean there's a twig that's being used. It means a bunch of things later on, but originally it meant to press and be newly born. I like to think of Soma as a noun and a verb. It's not just the substance, but it's also the seeking that goes on with inside the substance. And I love how the majority of the word for the flesh is the word for the seeking of the soul or the soul soma. Hmm. So somatic being tissue-based and soma being spirit, potentially spiritual or yeah. essential. It's great. They're, they're fused together. They've been infused together in front of our eyes for so long. So you've said that one of the primary goals of doing a somatic poetry ritual is to create an extreme present, to make it impossible for the person doing the ritual to dwell in the past or the future, which in a way creates an extreme presence as well. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about the importance of creating an extreme present and an extreme presence. Well, I began writing in 1975, and it wasn't until 2005 that I realized that I had been writing inside of Well, let's just put it this way. I was raised by factory workers, and they developed a coping mechanism to deal with these jobs at the factory where they would not be present. So they would knew their job, they would do their job, but their minds would wander into the past or the future. And they can't seem to switch that back when they leave work. So they live perpetually in the past and future. When I talk to them, I can hear they're depressed about the past, anxious about the future. So this is something that I grew up with and it becomes part of my life and I didn't realize it for a very long time. But I had a crisis around this in 2005 where I realized something was amiss. And when I finally figured it out, it took me another three over three weeks to really figure out what to do about it. And that's when I decided to do these rituals where I anchor myself in the present So my family lost the present and I lost it with them, but I wanted to regain it. And it's a beautiful thing when you finally realize that the present is what you've been looking for. Well, when you think of any factory worker or perhaps any job where someone is is not happy doing the job, where it's mechanized, and the, the questions of the past and the future, I think, do loom large. But there's something sort of improbably true about your own family in your own town that um, seems 
too too on the nose almost to be true is that they were working in a coffin factory originally when i was a child yeah before the before nafta yeah nafta destroyed that factory like many working class people's lives were it was interesting you describing in some interviews about how people would have uh, pictures of coffins in their billfold, the way that people would show pictures yeah. of their children, people would show pictures of the coffins that they had that they had built. Well, the thing is that factory, the coffin factory, when I was a child, that was a very different experience because it's an old old uh, fashioned nineteenth century workshop factory, meaning you had to have skills. Skilled labor was was very important. You needed to know how to work with wood. You needed to know how to work with fabric, metal, resins, colors, dyes. So they were creative, and they got to they express that creativity. It was after that uh, factory went to Mexico with many thousands of other factories, when they the factories that were left behind were very auto. So they were just very automated. Mm-hmm. So the jobs that my family took after that, they were just nothing more than extensions of machinery. I wanted to connect your shaping of your poetics sort of over and against that of a mechanized coffin factory worker to something you've talked about elsewhere in an entirely different context. You've talked about your interest in the hypogeum, the circular burial chambers found in ancient Greece, and the way they were used by pregnant women to visit the remains of their ancestors and to invite ancestral spirits to inhabit the bodies of their unborn babies. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about this and why this is particularly compelling to you as an image when you're creating art. The original reason I was obsessed with reading about these hypogeum is because I was very invested in these ideas of well, where is ritual before it gets consumed by monotheism? And I feel like monotheism kind of gave ritual a bad experience for everybody. So it's a very loaded word, ritual, when I come to do, especially public workshops, for like, well, I don't really like the word ritual. I grew up in a Catholic family or whatever. And I I go through a conversation with people about this. And what I point out to everybody is that when we make rituals, they're on our terms. And they can be spiritual, secular, whatever you want. It's entirely up to you. The hypogeum, to me, that is... Oh, that's just an amazing ritual to be pregnant and to go and offer your unborn child um, a, as a residence for these ancestors' souls to enter. I just find that beautiful and a little terrifying, but just the idea of that that is a cultural understanding that you can do that. It also means that you're not afraid of death. It also means you're not afraid, which, which is one of the problems with uh, monotheism. Well, at least Christianity in particular, there's mm-hmm. such an absolute fear of death that it paralyzes us in so many ways that um, I believe is responsible for many of the problems that we're facing now. When I, th- when I think about this burial chamber versus the coffin of the coffin factory, it feels like the past and the future are very present in the hypogeum, uh, literally, because we have the ancestral spirits and we have the unborn child, but that the present is what, it's, what is where the past and the future are coursing through rather than the present being absent with a factory worker. The present is sort of the conduit for the past and the future. I like that. Yeah. I like that you put it that way. 
So if we imagine you pregnant with poems descending into the hypogeum to allow them to commune with and be influenced by the dead, I wanted to look to the influences on your rituals that predate your your factory worker epiphany because you were writing for a long time before 2005 when you visited yeah. home and then decided you wanted to create somatic poetry rituals. And I, I encountered several things that in just researching your life and reading other interviews that seemed like they were influences on your rituals before your somatic rituals. One ritual before the poetry rituals you cite is when you were studying tarot when you were 19 with Pepe and Pepe was getting gender affirmation surgery and wanted you to create a ritual around being the last person who would jerk off her penis before it was removed, which you did. Mm -hmm. Um, But even before that, despite the mechanized factory life of your working class childhood, you also had a grandmother who had kept alive and preserved a variety of rituals from the old country. So Mm -hmm. I was hoping maybe you could talk about some of the proto-rituals for you before you came to the somatic poetry rituals? Well, I'm glad you brought up both my grandmother and Pepe because they're both these very wise and credible women that are old souls that I both, you know, have had the pleasure of knowing. My grandmother, I'm not actually a Conrad. My mother remarried and then I was adopted. And the reason I spent time with my grandmother Conrad, uh, Louise Conrad, is because a lot of the family, they were very unhappy about the fact that these outsiders were now inside the town and inside the family. We're Irish and Danish, and we just didn't fit at all the narrative that they had been living with for generations. But she wanted to do right by me and her son's choice of marriage. and So she would take me to see the water diviner do his work, and she taught me how to make the Seder formula, which is a very interesting um, magical square made with letters that spell Seder and then an opera at one point. Anyway, this is a square that you write out and then you enclose it in a box and then you put it in your pocket. And it's it's to act as a mirror against your enemies. It's like psychic warfare. So she's teaching me all these things. And then when I run away as a teenager to Philadelphia, and I get my first tarot deck when I, when I turn 18. The next year I meet Pepe, who is this sort of new age drag queen, who then becomes a trans woman and has surgery. But prior to that, we kind of she was referred to as the new age drag queen. Hmm. And we would all go to her for advice. And Pepe's the one who teaches me to read the tarot in a more comprehensive way through the zodiac. So it's a circular reading, taking it away from the Celtic cross putting into this more feminine, more ancient idea of the tarot. And the thing that I especially love is that when you read it that way, it is read through the present tense. The tarot is not read through the future. Hmm. And there are three future cards, but they're, they're almost an aside. They come at the very end of the reading. The only thing that matters in that reading are those, the ring from Aries around to Pisces, and it's all present. It's a snapshot of who you are at that moment. And any advice given there is going to show you how to get to those future cards. Mm. But so the only thing that matters is the present, which is what I love about Pepe teaching me the tarot that way. Well, a part of the reason I also wanted to bring up Pepe and your grandmother 
is because I listened to the first episode of your new radio program called with Wawen. With Wawen. And there was this really interesting... Occult Poetry Radio. Yeah, Occult mm-hmm. Poetry Radio, and I'll make sure people know where to find <laughs> it. But uh, with Wawen, and you, there's this really great moment for me, an illuminating moment for me in that conversation when she's talking about intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. which is um, obviously an important thing to think about. And we also have this compelling new science of epigenetics where we know that if your great-grandparents were in a drought or a famine you might have a higher risk of diabetes four generations later, that all these different ways that genes are expressed or get turned on and off um, can happen many generations before. And so that begs a lot of questions about, well, what what experiences of our ancestors are informing our behaviors or our, our diseases today? But you ask the question, or you pose sort of a rhetorical question about, well, do good things get passed down too? And that's why I sort of wanted to bring out your grandmother for one, because it seems that maybe it's just a bias of science that we look at it that way and don't seem to ask the question, well, what would it be like if someone really cultivated something in their life? Would they pass down a different way that genes would get turned on or off one generation to the next? The thing is the grandmother I'm talking about, we don't share genes, but um, she did want to pass things down to me that were things that were taught to her. And nobody else really seemed to want to listen to her about these things. Well, one of the things is gardening. We would stand in front of, this is, I'm a little, I'm a kid, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine. We would have our little garden um, weeded and there'd be a little section for the seeds to be placed. And she would have, uh, she would have me cut my hands and she would pour the beans the dry beans that we're going to plant into my hands, and then she would have some in her hands. We would face one another. She would ask me to close my eyes. She would close her eyes, and she would walk us both through this um, wonderful journey with the beans. She said, okay, now imagine you're planting the beans, and then we're covering up the beans, and we're watering the beans, and we're taking care of these seeds. And we're feeding them and watering them, and then they start to grow. And you know what they look like when they grow. Imagine them growing. And then they get beans, and we pick the beans. And you love these beans. We'll make butter. They're butter beans. And then we'll, we'll pick them and cook them, and then we'll eat them. And then they'll become our bodies. And then mm-hmm. we'll have more beans. Plant. She was the first person to walk me through how the body is made from the soil. That is very important to everything that I wind up doing later on with these rituals. Also, I was macrobiotic for 10 years when all my friends were dying of AIDS. So from 1988 to 1998, I'm macrobiotic and I'm very serious about the study. Studying at Michio Kushi at the Kushi Institute in Boston. And especially Christina Perillo. But anyway, we have I learned so much about the electrical systems in the human body, everything, how food is broken down, what it becomes, eating seasonally and locally and how that affects the body. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn. Yeah. Well, and my you... grandmother was the first lesson. She gave me the first lesson. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to the poet C.A. Conrad. Before we move on to some poems and some specific poetry rituals, I, I kind of wanted to highlight something that seems particularly striking about your philosophy because the question of poetry's relevance gets raised all the time by the world at large and by poets themselves. 
But you, by contrast, not only attribute your poetry rituals to saving your own life, but argue that the most vital ingredient to bringing sustainable, humane changes to the world at large is creativity, that this creativity can be enacted on a daily basis, and that these poetry rituals are particularly effective in this regard. So much so that for years, you've been developing personalized rituals for people who hate their jobs, Mm -hmm. and that there is no job where a ritual is not possible. There's no place and no time where the poems are not possible. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about these rituals as being at the forefront of changing the world and how the most crushing existence is still one where rituals of the sort could be potentially performed. Well, when I'm doing public workshops or if I'm if I'm invited to a museum, like I've been invited to many different places, but for instance, um, Aspen Museum in Colorado, or the or Gold, I was invited by Poets House in New York City and the as well as um, Madison Square Garden Park to do a residency. And they asked me what I want to do. And I said, well, just give me a little table and two chairs. And I want to just meet with people one-on-one and build personalized rituals. And I met a lot of people who would talk about how they used to be creative. I meet a lot of people who talk about that. In fact, it's the most common theme that's brought to me, that I used to be creative and then I stopped. I went to art school, I went to writing school, and then I stopped making art or writing. That is probably the most common thing I hear. So I feel like one of my jobs is to just show people how, yes, it's very easy for you to lose your way creatively, but I'm here to show you that it's also very easy to find your way back. Whatever those grooves are in your patterns that you've created for yourself, for your creativity, in your brain, in your body, because I just don't privilege the brain with these things, that um, you can find your way back. And that's what the rituals do for some people. It helps them reconnect. The rituals also help us not be so alienated from one another and from the planet. It's one of the attempts that I have with these rituals, trying to get us to see, A, how we are disconnected and how we can reconnect. You've mentioned before in an interview that you've even created rituals in anticipation of unforeseen circumstances for you. For instance, Mm -hmm. if you were to have a terminal diagnosis or lose control of your own body, you've sort of anticipated, well, what, how could I, in that constraint, still be creative and create poetry? And that's something that comes out of my teenage years and my early 20s, arriving in Philadelphia as a teenager, and everybody is dying of AIDS around me. Everybody. 75 to 80% of everybody I knew and loved back then died. And so, and I assumed for six years before I got tested that I was going to die. So as a young person, I had this um, funeral I was planning. Hmm. And then I found out that I was HIV negative and I saw that I had a future and it was mind-blowing. And then, of course, many decades later, here I am with you now talking, but... Those years were very traumatic in many ways, and it sort of set my mind in a different way than most people have. Mm. I, I, um, if there's anything at all good that came out of those years, it was an appreciation of every day mm. and understanding that there's so much to be grateful for and there's so much 
possibility and the creativity of everything around us that we don't see. I, I can't quote this enough. I've quoted it so many times, but I want to quote it again. The poet Alice Notley has this line from her poem, Circa 81, where she says, poetry so common, hardly anyone can find it. I think that's true. Can you tell us the story of Robert Desnos? Robert Desnos, um, part of the surrealist poets, um, Andre Breton is their big leader. Everybody knows Andre Breton. He's a really kind of awful human being, a tyrant, um, not a very interesting writer, not a very interesting person, as most tyrants tend to not be interesting. In fact, I think they're they're so mean because they lack so much. Um, frankly, that's my feeling about it. Desnos, completely the opposite kind of human being, very dedicated to his craft. By the second Surrealist Manifesto, Breton has denounced Desnos um, because Desnos is not obeying. But besides all of that, the Nazis arrive on the scene and, you know, Hitler is approaching Paris and Desnos joins the French resistance. He doesn't want to have anything to do with this Nazi menace. And he becomes, well, he's, he's captured and he's sent as a prisoner to Auschwitz, and then he goes to Treblinka. And it's this is the story that has to do with his creativity and the value of it and how he values life with his creativity. And He's also a palm reader. You know, they're involved with the occult, the surrealists. So he's their, their resident palmist. So as a prisoner in the death camps, he is literally writing a book of poems. And he's not writing a book of poems because he's aloof or being, you know, or he's desensitized. No, quite the opposite. He is devoted to his creativity because he knows it's his creativity that is going to show him the way to surviving. And one day the guards arrive with this truck and they load Desnos and the other prisoners onto this truck and they start driving, and Desnos realizes they're on the way to the gas chamber, and they're all going to die. But he gets out of that truck first. He starts grabbing the f- hands of these Philom inmates and reading their palms in German with this exuberance. This man's dying of typhoid and hasn't had a meal, a real meal in months. And... He starts saying, you know, their names aloud, and he starts reading the lifeline. You're going to have a very long life. You're going to retire and have grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. And the guards are angry and confused, and they send Desnos and these prisoners back because they can't kill them now. Desnos, being as creative as, as he was, was studying the guards, studying what they were doing to protect themselves from what they were doing to the prisoners. Mm. And... He found out a way to save all these lives in one afternoon through his creative abilities. No bullets were fired. All these lives were saved. And for more than half a century, the survivors have told the story of the poet who found a way to save all these lives. And this is because the soldiers, when they hear the names and see these people humanized, can't kill this specific batch of prisoners. And Desnos is saying these people are going to live long lives. And it's it just finally breaks the hearts of the guards, I'm assuming. 
that's what he wants to do and he does it. Yeah. He's the poet. He figures it out. Yeah. That's what creativity can do for you. If you're really serious about living a creative life, you're going to be the person in the room who knows how to get out of that room alive and thrive, not just survive, but thrive. So now after people have heard about the poetry rituals and the abstract, I'm sure people are really interested in hearing more details. So maybe we could start with your most recent and ongoing project, Resurrect Extinct Vibration a ritual and nine maneuvers that will result in 108 poems and just have you orient as to what you're doing and why. Well, this ritual comes out of a, a different ritual that I did where I was curing depression that I had. I had a very serious depression after my boyfriend Earth was murdered. But it all had to do with, well, basically the fact that this is a man who was not just an AIDS activist. We were an act up in the 80s. But also, and in the early 90s, but also he was an environmental activist. And he changed his name to Earth. And he was tortured, raped, and covered in gasoline and lit on fire. He was burned to death. The man who named himself Earth was treated the way we're actually treating the planet Earth right now. And it just breaks my heart when I think about it. When I finally realized that connection, it was so horrifying but I wanted it to not be something that stayed in the horror. So I started thinking about the fact that I'm in, in my 50s now and that in my lifetime we've lost more than half of all the wild creatures on the planet. So what I've been doing is I've been thinking about eco-poetics as something slightly left or beyond of the conversation about degraded soil, air, and water, including the idea of vibrational absence. So when a species leaves or is severely depleted, they take the sounds of their heartbeat and their footfalls, their breath, their cries. Everything's gone. Fluttering. Wings. Gone. And it's not coming back. We now know from these other articles that The Guardian and London and other newspapers are, are telling us about these studies that we've lost 29% of all the birds. Some of the ornithologists believe that it's because they can't hear one another. Their songs are drowned out by the din of humanity, all of our machinery, our cars, our highways, airplanes. There's, um, <clears throat> there's a, also... A lot being written about how dolphins have had to create a shorthand for their conversations and to be louder because the oceans are so overwhelmed with our sounds. And uh, they're dumbing down their language on behalf of humans to be able to communicate and hunt and live. So it's something to think about. A, the missing sound, and B, the, um, the way that we are filling in their sounds and what that's doing. And what, what we can possibly do to curb all of this and to stave off this hemorrhaging wound. I think there are solutions. I'm not a dark green. I believe that these solutions can be found. But um, what I've been doing in the ritual is flooding my body with the sounds of these extinct creatures. When I was um, interviewing Ricky Ducournay, she brings up this idea of species loneliness. She believes that even if you live your entire life in a 
denatured, hyper-urban environment, just the fact that all these creatures that we share a a genetic legacy with, um, we feel the loss of them in our bodies. Oh, that's exactly what I agree with that completely because uh, one of the big mysteries around this ritual for me was, well, I'll just say it, the fact that I would be filling my body with these sounds of extinct animals and I was enjoying it. And I found that disturbing. But I believe what's happening is that my cells have a memory behind these sounds. Even though they're creatures that I didn't actually see, their vibrations were very real and they were very much part of this world. That gossamer that holds all life together gets broken when a species leaves. So we are connected. I believe, I agree with that completely, what you were just saying. Before we go further into the details around resurrect extinct vibration, let's let's actually try to listen to a couple of these sounds that that's, you that you great. that you listen to when you're doing the ritual. So this first one, do you have anything you want to say about the OO? Well, the OO was a bird from Hawaii that is recently extinct. There's a very haunting uh, image. The a video actually of the bird and one of those documentaries that you can see on PBS with the bird singing and tilting its little head way and beautiful plumes. This bird was so beautiful. Listening for somebody else to sing back, but he didn't realize he was the last one. Hmm. Okay, so here's the OO. As I was telling you before the show, that that one particularly breaks my heart, both mm-hmm. that I've never heard it before, but also just how hauntingly beautiful that one is. It certainly is, especially when you start putting it into your body the way that you can feel it. I don't have the speakers just I don't like I said, I'm not privileging the head. I have the speakers at my feet first and I slowly move them up my body. Well, let's listen to the way the white rhino sounds. Did you want to tell us anything about the white rhino first? Well, this particular recording are infants. And there used to be 25,000 of them in 1970. And now there are just a couple Hmm. left. But this sound is also quite... I find this a very joyous but strange, amazing sound. It's terrific. It's sort of hard to pivot from those sounds. I feel like I want to perhaps, like you did, sit with them and be with them longer. Oh, yeah. It's 
it's beautiful to to um to listen to them and then you know it's not so beautiful once you start coming out of the trance that you're in with them that they're gone yeah well this project isn't just about loss of species and what we lose when we lose them walmart also figures prominently in the project so mm-hmm. why why walmart and and what role does walmart play in interaction with the extinct animal sounds well first of all i'm thinking about walmart as the epitome of this great horrible experiment in the united states i'm thinking in particular about manifest destiny which is a 19th century term which was i mean let's just be honest it was a genocide campaign of people and the great herds that they followed, just exterminate them. I believe that Walmart is an experiment that can't possibly continue. There are over 9,000 of them in the lower 48 states, and the smaller ones have about 250,000 products for sale. The larger ones have half a million or more. There's just no reason to have all of these things and to have so many of them. And the amount of energy wasted to fill these stores, I mean, it's, it's just completely unsustainable. Hmm. But what I do is I sleep in my car in Walmart parking lots. And the thing is, Sam Walton wanted these parking lots to be a place where the, the baby boomers could park their Winnebago's and their Airstreamers when they're doing the great road trip across America. And yes, that's happening. But he didn't count on the fact that all the homeless people that he himself helped create will also show up. You'll have families crammed into cars with a sign in the windshield that says we need baby formula, we need diapers, things like that. And there's a segregation that goes on that is very common in all the the Walmart parking lots. There's no designated area whatsoever for the parking, but they all seem to have this type of segregation where, like, the rich Winnebago snowbirds, they're retirees, they're in, like, the Custer's Last Stand circle, and then all the homeless people are on the other side of the parking lot in their cars and their vans and Hmm. trunks. But I sleep uh, sort of further back because I want to, when I wake up in the morning, study the terrain of the Walmart with binoculars. I like to look at, you know, if I'm at the wa- a Walmart outside of, uh, you know, Tallahassee, Florida, it's going to have palm trees. It's going to have different kind of flora and fauna. But, of course, if I'm in Montana or if I'm in Wyoming, it's going to look very, very different. And then I walk toward the Walmart while, again, listening to these extinct animal sounds, I enter the Walmart, and once I enter the Walmart, it becomes the portal into this Walmart dimension. These massive indoor cities, basically, with the same music playing, the same uniforms, the same grocery carts, the same everything's the same. So it's like there are 9,000 of these uh, very similar gateways into this dimension, this Walmart dimension. And then I walk a spiral formation inside these massive stores while listening to the animal sounds. And then I get down on the floor and write. Sometimes I'm thrown out, especially if I'm uh, on my back. 
which I like to do. You're not allowed to day that. You can, I can, I found out that if I kneel down and write, nobody bothers me. They, they keep an eye on me, but if once I lie down, that's it. Hmm. Well, well, let's listen to, um, a couple poems. Okay. As part, that's part of the resurrect extinct vibration project. I was thinking of golden in the morning, crane our necks and on all fours. I am a seat for the wind. The first one, Golden in the Morning, Crane Our Necks, I dedicate to the 4,600 Google employees who, in 2018, wrote and signed a document telling their CEO that they were no longer fulfilling military contracts. The Pentagon wanted Google to wed their AI technology with the killer drones in the Middle East. And these employees, without the safety of a union... These are people with children, mortgages. They risked their careers, risked being blacklisted in the future, but they just couldn't do it. They refused to do it, and they won the argument. Hmm. It's very brave, and it has not been discussed properly. It has been written about in the New York Times, etc., but the major media does not want to discuss these things because they are so complicit in the arms trade. And that's, you know, basically what this whole story is about. But this is for them. That's 4,600 Google employees. In a past life, I was a little fish who cleaned the shells of turtles. A dream helped me remember their deep voice of thanks. Many nights I heard sharks waiting for the tide to draw me near. When the calendar runs out, it feels lucky another awaits. All I have ever wanted was to forge the English language into a spear and drive it into my heart. Between leaping and being shoved, the lonelier place to put my faith for the swinging motion inside the dance we share. Don the extraordinary suit for this ordinary day. Take our time studying trees to imagine the nests we would build if we were birds. I ask all you talented people spending many creative hours perfecting killer drones, guns, and bombs to please know we are waiting for you on the other side of art in the no-kill zone. So the other poem you asked me to read is this one called on all fours, I am a seat for the wind. Most of my family's international travel is being sent to war. If we judge love, we can kill off anything, drag by our hair across the days until they make their way inside our dreams where we get to evict them. I want to thank the one who invented knocking on the door, but no one remembers their name to tattoo across my knuckles. I asked an archaeologist about first time she stuck a shovel in the ground. Her answer had same restorative powers as the gravediggers. When we die, we can no longer wipe the muck off. Just lie there, becoming shit of the world. Eat a chip of your own dried blood. Join me in the cannibal sunshine, fully persuaded by the world through song. Each morning, a blue jay screams at edge of the clear-cut forest. I scream with her at the bleeding stumps. Scream inside something borrowed like ocean, like skin. 
I want to see before I die a mink wearing a human scarf, skin from a handsome hairy leg. Meow. We've been listening to C.A. Conrad read his most recent poetry. You have a PCA you wrote called From Whitman to Walmart. Mm-hmm. And this project, Resurrect Extinct Vibration, began outside the house where Whitman lived his final years in Camden, New Jersey. So I was hoping you could draw the thread for us from Whitman to Walmart for you. First of all, thank you so much for bringing this up. This is the t- 2019 is the 200th birthday of Whitman. As um, a queer poet who won the Landa Literary Award recently, it is shocking that during the 200th birthday of Walt Whitman, when I have been invited to talk about Whitman and I say, well, are you going to talk about his extreme racism? I'm suddenly just disinvited or this just becomes very mute. But I will talk about it. Walt Whitman was very important to me when I was younger, growing up in this extremely racist and homophobic part of rural Pennsylvania. He kept me going. And then when I arrived as a teenager in Philadelphia, my friends started saying, well, yeah, but have you read the prose? Because it's not so great. And it's shocking the first time you read that prose. When he talks, he literally says things like um, that... Black people in particular, he says, don't have, their brains are smaller. He believed this. He absolutely believed the superiority of white genes. And he, and he spreads this, this, these, these ideas throughout his prose. And it's terrifying. He doesn't want uh, the freed slaves to vote for the president. He doesn't, he literally says that they have the brains of baboons and should not be trusted with the presidential election. It is so unbelievable. And, you know, I wrote that essay that you mentioned. The amount of hate mail that I received and continue to receive is was unexpected at first, and then I started getting used to it. But I'll tell you the most common argument against my essay from people, and they're all white people, by the way, who write to me with this anger, this vitriol, The most common thing they say is, well, you just don't understand the 19th century American mindset. And I say, okay, so let's follow this train of thought. You're saying that the majority opinion should rule and we should, quote unquote, grandfather Walt Whitman in. So let's just go a couple of decades into the future after Whitman's death when Hitler is building the death camps in Poland. Since he was elected on the majority vote, unlike Trump, he won the popular vote. And it was an anti-Semitic platform, as we all know. Are you going to excuse the Holocaust? After all, your whole idea is, I don't understand the 19th century American mindset, so I should just allow Whitman to say that black people are inferior and that native people should be wiped out. That's the other thing Whitman says, by the way. He valorizes the Colorado Territory Militia, which was just a group of vigilantes, let's be honest, who slaughtered hundreds of women and children in Cheyenne and Arapaho um, tribes in Colorado. Whitman writes about this in his famous poem, O Pioneers, O Pioneers, where he says... Oh, we are Colorado men. Are your axes sharpened? Are your, are your guns loaded? 
It's just remarkable, this kind of wholesale advertisement for Manifest Destiny. He was the ad campaign for America, just destroying entire generations of people. Um, Here's the thing, though. All that said, when you stand on his doorstep and came to New Jersey, directly across the street, there is a state-of-the-art prison, high-rise prison, one of these inner-city prisons, and there's barbed wire of of all kinds of barbed wire, as you can imagine. And you would see in the afternoon these young African-American and Latino mothers coming with their homemade sign language to talk to these men in the windows. That is a scene that played out over and over and over every morning in front of this man's house. And then when you look in the other direction at City Hall in Camden, New Jersey, you'll see etched into the top of this giant font that says, I dream a city invincible, Walt Whitman. Mm -hmm. And it's just lies. I don't trust the poems at this point. I can't even bear reading Walt Whitman at this point. Well, it begs the question of the we and who's included in the we. Right. Um, Exactly. Apparently, for him, it was white people. Right. Because he was also anti-Mexican and pro-Mexican-American war. And I I like this that you said in in the essay. He was not merely an apologist for empire. He was an enthusiastic cheerleader for it. Imagine an American poet of 2015 writing romantic verse about the carnage and suffering our military has recently brought to the millions of people in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Syria, Somalia, Libya, and Iraq. It's hard to imagine a popular poet writing romantic verse about that. Right. But it gets swept under the under the carpet, literally. I mean, Whitman has been so sanitized... And then let's just be honest. That's what he was doing himself to the book. I've had so many people say, isn't it amazing that he wrote Leaves of Grass over and over again? I said, no, actually, it's not. It's not interesting at all. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not great. He became the great gray poet because he got... If you look at the unexpurgated text, that original text, the one that Allen Ginsberg fell in love with, it's filled with very overt homosexual sex and all kinds of things. He gets rid of that. That's why he's taught in the high schools across the country, all these Mm -hmm. sort of things. Uh, Yeah, I mean, everybody who is arguing against this essay of mine, I can tell that they've just, they feel like I'm I'm taking from them this, this little cozy bearded nest that they've been in a trance with for many years, and they love the poems, and I get it, I understand that. I was in love with the poems. But to completely ignore the actual political body behind this man is, well, I'm just, I refuse to do that. Well, it feels also sort of connected to the Constitution in the sense of the aspirational aspect of the Constitution or the reality of the way the Constitution's enacted too. Because the we, the people in the Constitution also had a reference to the Native population is merciless savages, so obviously not part of we the people. Well, that's the problem with our culture. We're constantly saying these things. For every time I'm, I'm listening to the radio and I hear somebody with a new uh, medical report, they say, people are living longer. But I'm like, what people? 
You know what I mean? What people? Right. Rich white people are living longer. Like, who's living longer? Um, I don't think uh, queer people are living longer. I mean, I feel like you need to qualify when you say people are living longer. Yeah. So you, you've said that the way that people wanted you to feel for being gay when you were growing up was nothing compared to the shame you felt when you discovered gay racists. Mm-hmm. And in, in light of this, I wanted to talk to you about queer poetics and a queer politic that to me feels kindred to Matilda Bernstein's Sycamore, which oh, I love Matilda, which yeah. foregrounds the revolutionary potential of queerness over the quest for acceptance in society with gay marriage or gays in the military. If someone were to ask me to describe your poetry to others, I might say that it lies at the intersection between a queer poetics and a cult poetics and an eco poetics. But I kind of wondered for you if these are inseparable, if all of them are occurring in some fashion in everything you do, or whether when you're doing a poetry ritual around someone you've lost to AIDS or a partner who's been murdered in a hate crime, that there's something different about that than when you're doing a poetry ritual that has to do with species extinction or ecological collapse. But they are all connected as far as I'm concerned. Misogyny, homophobia, racism, uh, these are foundational problems that go back many centuries, as we know. But in particular, the queer issue, the, the question coming up that you have there, I think about Judy Gron's amazing book from 1990 another mother tongue where she is tracing the queer history of uh, ancient europe before it fell to the church and the dictates of the church basically when women were in charge and she looks at the word faggot you know the 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 slur faggot this um hateful way faggot is used comes from that time period it is traced back to then because the Inquisition believed that a witch's flesh would not burn by sticks, faggots, but which faggots are groups of sticks, alone. So they would take these gay men that follow the witches and put them at their, strangle them and put their dead bodies at the feet of the witch before burning the witches in public. Now, of course, many of the women who were burned during those, those many horrible years, centuries, it actually was hundreds of years, They were not all witches, but some of them were, and the ones who were witches, even like Joan of Arc, had several gay men followers. So this is this is there's a very long history of gay men in particular working with these wise women, these healers, Hmm. and that goes back um, all over the world. This kind of history. So when the women had to be destroyed under the, 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 that's the way these men were thinking, when they wanted to dominate that culture with first, of course, Christianity, but then science gets thrown in there. So they get rid of the women, but they had to get rid of the men, the gay men with them. So it's all connected. And with this comes the destruction of the environment. Mm. Christianity in particular has a ruthless idea about husbandry of animals and the land. It's just unforgiving. And it's hard to talk to many Christians who are so fundamental about what it is, that religion. They will not listen to you talk about global warming or poisoning the environment because they claim God gave us the planet to do whatever we wanted to. 
and of course the afterlife the emphasis such the emphasis on the afterlife it's all about heaven it doesn't matter what you you know you can do whatever you want to the water and the land and the animals you're allowed to do that well let's hear a couple more poems glitter in my wounds and encircling the day with centipede coordination so glitter in my wounds is a a poem I wrote after writing an essay for McSweeney's, uh, which was an essay about the anti-lesbian, gay, transgender laws that are all over the United States. I think I hope most people listening to this radio program understand that right now in 2019, 30 of the 50 states in the United States, it is technically illegal to be lesbian, gay, transgender. You can have your employer fire you. You can have... Uh, landlords throw you out. Shop owners, restaurant owners can throw you out. Chick-fil-A, I don't know. I'm so sick of seeing people talk about Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is one of the most hateful organizations on the planet. They give millions of dollars to anti-lesbian, gay, transgender organizations. One Part of the funding goes to conversion therapy. I met several people in North Carolina when I was fighting the HB2 law, the anti-trans law, a few years ago. These three people were forced by their parents and pastors of the church to undergo conversion therapy, part of which include electroshock treatment. We are electrocuting queer kids every single day in this country of ours. It's medieval, the type of Christianity we're dealing with. When I'm in Europe talking about this, People do not understand, and I say to them, I said, well, you know, the type of Christianity I'm dealing with in the United States of America is something you got rid of hundreds of years ago. So this is called Glitter in My Wounds. First and most important, dream our missing friends forward. Burn their reflections into empty chairs. We are less bound by time than the clockmaker fears. This morning, all I want is to follow where the stone angels point, birdsong lashing me to tears. Heterosexuals need to see our suffering, the violent deaths of our friends and lovers. To know glitter on a queer is not to dazzle, but to unsettle the foundation of this murderous culture. Defiant weed smashing up through cement. You think Oscar Wilde was funny? Well, darling, I think he was busy distracting straight people so they would not kill him. If you knew how many times I've been told, you're not like my gay best friend who tells me jokes and makes me laugh. No, I sure as fuck am not. I have no room in my life to audition for your pansy mascot. You people can't kill me and think you can kill me again? I met a tree in Amsterdam and stood barefoot beside it for 20 minutes, then left completely restored. Yet another poem not written by a poet. Sometimes we need one muscle to relax so the others follow. My friend Mandy calls after a long shift at the strip club to say, While standing in line for death, I am fanning my hot pussy with your new book. Will you sign it next week, my fearless faggot sister? So the second poem you wanted me to read is called Encircling This Day with Centipede Coordination. 
So um, at the top of this poem, I say, Dear Eileen, and the Eileen is Eileen Miles, who is sort of a queer superhero of mine since I was a teenager and still is. Eileen, they are one of my favorite people on the planet. Encircling this day with centipede coordination. Dear Eileen, have we sunk the shine? The maintenance man at this place asked if I needed help relaxing tonight. <laughs> I told him to throw my door open whenever he wanted, and he fucking did it. When men do as I say is save so much time. He prolonged a certain mediation of reality, a day when my pronoun choice is uppity cunt. I imagine nine things close my eyes until they are connected. After moving around for years, I knew if I rested to lay his filthy hand against my chest. Little critter under my tires, roadkill changing to armadillos. Tell a lie to steal time for this poem. Some days there is no problem and it is terrifying. Let's not get used to that. Let's stop believing that. My Capricorn horns digging pits in the earth, a surplus of pits to bury what may not want to let go. Cars feeding crows, coyotes, and vultures. He asked if poetry could possibly fulfill me, but it is the study of everything. Listening to C.A. Conrad read poems from his latest project, Resurrect Extinct Vibration. So I wanted to quote you back to yourself and then ask you a question. Um, You once said, before Christianity colonized Europe and the Americas, queer people were esteemed for their informed orientation between the gaping maw of gender and sexuality. Queerness was holy, was shamanistic, and the pagan cultures they belonged to, as racially various and spiritually divergent as they were, also shared a deep awareness of the intricate and delicate interdependence between all plants, animals, and minerals. So in light of this quote, I I wanted to ask you about cultivating this deep awareness because I was thinking about how you you travel when you're doing this project. You're going to all 50 states. You're sleeping in your car and in, in the Walmart parking lots, but you're also always armed with magnifying glasses and binoculars. And I wondered if this was somehow related to the experience that you related from your childhood in one of your interviews. And, and in that interview, you say, as a boy growing up in rural Pennsylvania, I would stare at a tree during a snowfall, stay focused on the tree until suddenly I could see all the snow falling around me at the same time. Luxurious crystals of snow glittering from the sky, and I remember coming out of the trance, looking around and thinking, what the hell is this planet about? And so I guess I wanted, my curiosity was, is, is part of the occult simply uh, defamiliarizing ourselves from seeing everything in a very ordinary way. Like is the magnifying glass and the binoculars or a microscope or a telescope or some of these rituals part of um, finding the soma and the somatic? Absolutely. The, and the occult is nothing more than um, very often it's just science that hasn't been proven to be science yet. Hmm. Uh, the occult is this the veil being lifted back on the way we breathe and live. And that's why should it not be absolutely mysterious to us that we're 75% water, first of all? That's very strange. And that we're walking around on this planet 
oblivious to that very fact and to know that water absorbs sound like nothing else on the planet. Therefore, we're deeply affected by sound and movement. And yeah, I'm very excited the more we look into our bodies and how they relate to the planet, completely relate to the planet, the more we realize just how um, this is one giant sphere, uh, excuse me, sphere of um, endless information to find out about what's, po and inside of that is also the possibilities. Because once you understand that it's really about transmuting the molecules and turning them into something else, or transfiguring the soul and turning that into something else, Thinking, too, about how we have, I think, very wrongly thought for too many generations now that because we're when we get depressed, we can write more. You've heard this, right? Mm -hmm. I think that it's nothing more than when a tragedy occurs, uh, all of a sudden, yes, we are depressed. But inside of that is a highly focused way of thinking during depression. So once you realize it's not the depression, but the focus that you garner inside of the depression, well, then you're liberated from this idea that it's about depression. It's not. You can move that to whatever you want. Just highly focus on something. I don't just have magnifying glass. I also have a, a microscope. You I have like a microscope. Look, oh, yeah. I love, you know, the kind you can get. They're cheap and you can find every thrift store seems to have one and you know, for five bucks, you can have a microscope and you can look at the river from with through a telescope in the far distance and then binoculars and then a magnifying glass and then even deeper into the actual cell structure. Hmm. Well, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about something that you said in when you were in conversation with Rachel Zucker on the Commonplace podcast, a, a really great conversation. And she wonders about aloneness in your life. Um how as a child you worked standing on the side of the road selling flowers and, and with resurrect extinct vibration, how you're often on the road by yourself. And yet at the same time, your work feels very social and very collaborative. And I also noticed that more often than not, your, your rituals and your poems um, are dedicated to someone else that are, that are, they're actively often in conversation with a poet or artist. Um, not always one or the other, but, both people who are alive and, and who are no longer alive. But you go further and say everything is, in fact, collaboration. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about the myth of the writer alone creating <clears throat> art and this question of aloneness, perhaps, versus loneliness, and then, uh, and then the way in which collaboration, whether we like it or not, is, the, is really the, the reality of it. Well, this goes back to your earlier question about queerness and ecology. It's that connection. Because where I grew up, it was, it was this part of rural Pennsylvania where the Ku Klux Klan has its eastern seaboard headquarters. So I was literally going to school with the children of the Ku Klux Klan. And it was no joke. These people are very serious about their incredibly wrong way of thinking about this world. I was outed in high school and that began a whole new way of living. Once I was out of this, switch got flipped and it wasn't going back. But what it did for me is it forced me outside of the world that I was used to living in. Suddenly, and I mean very suddenly, I was no longer allowed to participate. 
I was thrown out of the acceptable, respectable structure of the world, which was terrifying at first, but then I got very used to it. And in getting used to it, I realized that I didn't need to follow the same rules and strictures any longer. I wasn't allowed to. Therefore, I got to make my own way. And that gave me a way toward um, understanding that my creativity is easier to access. It's actually people who obey and are following the directions of others. Those are the people who suffer the most later on. Those are the people who definitely lose their autonomy if they ever had it at all. Those are the people who forget that they were artists when they were children. Because I was um, ridiculed and persecuted for being queer, I got to have this space that was my own. I wouldn't want to repeat any of that, but that's what it gave me. And in doing that, it gave me a new way of like seeing the world. And the more I d- understood the ground that I stood on, the more I started to think about the commonality of everything. It took me a while. It's like a whole sort of circular thing I had to go through to get to that. But eventually I come back around to the idea of, well, okay, so there are all these differences that I'm told that I have with everybody now, right? I'm told that I don't belong, that I'm not the same. But then I started thinking, yeah, but we both have lungs. We both have blood systems and veins. And yeah, I was was like, yeah, actually we have more in common than I've been told that we do. So when I was at the the Portland Book Festival earlier this month, I went to the Wave Books table, the the publisher that you've published a lot of your books with, and I was talking to the poet Ro Yamaguchi, the public, publicity director for Wave, about you and about what a conversation with you could look like that would be different than ones that you've had. And he mentioned wanting to hear more about the life of a truly itinerant poet, a poet lifestyle that once quite prominent with the strolling minstrel of ancient Greece or the wandering bards of medieval Europe, and perhaps who I think of most, Basho, who, when his hut burned down and his mom died at age 38, spent a lot of his life wandering, and also wandering routes that were considered dangerous, where he could be killed by bandits or lost in the middle of nowhere, and a danger that you have also courted with your very public rituals, um, which often foreground your queerness. But today there are not, I can't think of other itinerant poets. I'm sure there are others, but I'd be curious to hear about your experience of living this lifestyle where in the short time that we've corresponded, you were in Amsterdam, Norway, England, Toronto, DC, California, Santa Fe, Chicago, New York, Philly, Georgia, and now Portland, and how you connect wandering with questions of place, land, and ecology. Well, I'm very curious about how all of these are connected. That's one of the things I'm always looking at as I'm moving. I have a running list of things that I see that are similar. The United States is what I would want to focus on, though, if you don't mind, with answering you, because that's my main focus, especially with this ritual. You had mentioned earlier that um, this is supposed to have 108 poems in the end, I've decided that it's not. It's going to be 50. I'm I'm getting I got rid of I started going through the poems I've been working on and just getting rid of many of them that I didn't like. And I realized I just want 
50 of them for the 50 states because I'm going to be doing this in all 50 states. Um, my boyfriend, Trey, who's a truck driver, I'm not going to say who he works for just because I don't think that would be good to do. It's a very conservative world he works in. But um, he and I meet in a different state each time. And I've recently completed the ritual in all the lower 48 states. And that was very satisfying and, and very exciting to come to that. Next year, I'll go to Alaska and Hawaii to finish it. But, um, <clears throat> you know, he, my boyfriend Trey, has tried to get me to not be so me on the road because I stand out. But I'm not going to do any such thing. I'm just, I'm not going into the closet for anybody. And I most recent, my most, I mean, I've had a few folks, a few close calls. The most recent one was just a couple months ago in West Virginia. I was at this uh, place getting gas. I don't want to give the long version. I just, but I was inside the little gas station uh, convenience store and in line to pay. And as I approached the cashier, and the cashier is this young, like, 16-year-old young woman, young, like a girl, teenager. And she looks at my fingernails. She's like, oh, I like your fingernails. And I said, and I thanked her. And then I heard this voice behind me say, oh, look at the faggot's fingernails. And I turned around. And it's a woman about my age, maybe a little older, with uh, two kids who I assume are maybe her grandchildren or maybe she's an aunt or something. And one of them is a boy who looks like maybe he's nine or something, and a girl who's maybe four or five or six. And she's got an arm around each of them protectively in this really weird way. And she's got a little cross around her neck. And I said, what is your problem? And she lunged her head forward and she said, you shouldn't be allowed in public around children, people like you. And, you know, she just got into this, like, diatribe. And the entire store froze. All the people in there were just listening to this church woman take on the faggot in the store, you know? And everything I said made it her angrier and made everything worse. Uh, there were Trump bumper stickers out in that parking lot. It was very clear which car was mine. I drive a Toyota Camry. These were all American cars, the other cars. There weren't that many of them. Anyway, as I'm leaving, I just thought, I have to leave. It's getting crazy in here. I got to get out of here. She's talking about Trump now and, you know, like how Trump's going to put me in my place, that kind of stuff. Anyway, as I'm leaving, she's approaching the counter and saying to this young woman, oh, do you like my fingernails? You just have to be a faggot to get any attention around. What kind of place is this? You know, wow. I felt bad for this young woman. So I just get in my car. I'm like, I just got to get the hell out of here. Um, <clears throat> and as I'm driving on the highway, which is pretty, you know, this, the stop was right off the highway. I'd say maybe 10, 15 minutes into this drive, my tire blows up. And um, it was confusing because it was kind of a new tire. Anyway, the a AAA man came to change the tire. He's like, oh, you know, do you, do you realize this, tire's, this tire's been cut? And he showed me the knife mark. And I said, oh, okay. Wow. And it wasn't that woman because she was still in the store. It was somebody else who left. This, somebody else went out and they knifed my tire and then I get down to Georgia and I show it to my friend Maggie Zerwalski and she's like oh yeah that looks like a knife cut and then without any prompting the man who changes the tire in Georgia he says you need to be careful where you park do you realize that this tire has been tampered with and I said oh okay you know 
I didn't call the police. I've got very bad experience with the police, um, especially in places like West Virginia, Tennessee. The last thing I wanted to do was call the police. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of close calls with these things. Could you talk about the crystal power grid in relationship to land? Because uh, mm-hmm. it seems like another way this ritual is, even though you're on the move, it's engaging with a, a certain idea of land. Yes, I, I planted these co- solid copper water bottles. They're, they're bottles that are used by um, people who practice Ayurvedic medicine. But why I like them is, is that the, they're solid copper and copper is a conductor. And so what I was doing was I was filling these copper containers with equal amounts of uh, three kinds of crystal, carnelian, amethyst, and rose quartz. And then I would fill water up to about an inch of the top, seal them, and then bury them. I buried one of these in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, another one in Memphis, Tennessee, and a third one in Cheyenne, Wyoming to make this giant triangle that's in the middle of the nation. But then in the middle of the triangle, the very center of the triangle is the city Omaha, Nebraska. And that is where I plant the fourth container with crystals. And that's the seat of the grid. So I then sit on top of that grid, bare-assed. I mean, I like literally am on the ground sitting on top of it. And I have a compass and I align myself with Minneapolis. And then I eat a tiny bit of the soil from Minneapolis. And I um, listen to an ambient recording and I get into this trance with that, and then I begin writing. And then I switch clockwise to Memphis, and then again to Cheyenne, and then I do the whole thing two more times. And are those three cities of specific significance, other than that they constellate towards Omaha in the middle? I wanted Minneapolis to be the first because it's a very American word. It takes the Lakota word for water, mini. And it fuses it with the Greek word for city. So we get water city, Minneapolis. I love that. Uh, And it's a great city. I don't know if you've ever been to Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan. They have uh, one of our nation's only vegan butchers. I'm vegan, so I really like this place. It's it's, It's incredible. You have to visit this place. And then Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee is named after the much-fabled ancient city of Memphis, Egypt. And Memphis, Egypt is, uh, in Egypt, it's set at the mouth of the Nile, and it takes all that energy from that giant river. And then it sends the energy off in the direction of Giza, where we have the pyramids and the Sphinx. Memphis, Tennessee is sitting at the jawbone of the Mississippi. It gathers a lot of energy as the Mississippi comes around at that juncture of uh, where where it is there are 323 tributary rivers that make the mississippi it's a very bold body of water and uh, somebody has built a giant glass pyramid on the shores of memphis tennessee it's very strange and then the third city and the triangle of the grid is cheyenne wyoming cheyenne is the name of the great tribe of people cheyenne and but it was named Cheyenne after the wars and 
making these um, great people no longer be able to follow the herds and they had to live on reservations. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a way of honoring them. And also, you know, this pyramid, uh, excuse me, this triangle of these, of these three cities, it's, it's in the path of manifest destiny where those original, um, white settlers went into the West with everything to just rape and kill and make their way and uproot and destroy the way of life of the native people who had been there for many, many, many generations before white people were ever seen. Hmm. We have a new poem. I think it's one of the newer poems you've written. Only in stacking books can the tree feel its weight again. I was hoping maybe you'd read that in Kamisato for us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is one of the newest poems. And it does, I mean, in the middle of it, it talks about the fact that... uh, My seventh anniversary of living on the road is coming up very soon. Only in stacking books can the tree feel its weight again. I am so fucking sick of nations and the men who love them. The number of suicides this afternoon hiding in bottom of a cup. I feel feral out here. Found a man who likes me like that. Found a man who lives the way I do. Seven years on the road anniversary soon. You only have to destroy yourself for love until it is normal, which makes love normal, and refuse to live a day without it, an inferno of it. At 16, sleeping with my mother's boyfriend, I was overwhelmed with it. Solids form around you until you struggle no more beneath it. Feel throat open in a word. Naming new stars moving across the ceiling from the disco ball. Constellations with stories to soften hardened hearts. We finished the night reading poetry out loud. Last night, Erica Kaufman's mind-blowing post-classic. Poetry and love sure know how to hang a welcome sign out. Measure and transmit from the pink and adorable telemetry. No more waiting between parentheses. We now excel in the ether while holding hands. And this other poem is called Camisado. Camisado, the Iowa Review is publishing this in the next episode, uh, next issue of their journal. Camisado is a military term that means killing your enemies in their sleep. I remember first encountering this word in high school when my high school um, history teacher said, well, as we know, the most famous American camisado is when General George Washington crossed the Delaware to kill the British soldiers in their sleep. It was a very brave decision. I remember at the time thinking as a kid, like, I don't think it's brave to kill people while they're sleeping. It's strategic, yes, but not brave. That's ridiculous. That's why I still remember that word, I think. Mm. Camisado. And I use this title in this particular poem because I am thinking about Trump and his his uh, disgusting, deplorable cabinet and how they basically are entering our sleep and doing whatever they want. Kamisato. After breaking in, the wolf calmed the hens so he could take his time with them, twist them open until the right amount of memory fits into the song. Another high price for belonging. 
Poetry is the opposite of escape. It makes this world endurable. How the smallest puddle reflects the entire sky. I return to every dream our minds talked us out of. Trusting our math of the star. Your hand around my shoulder, poet astronaut, you know I love you. I have no sense of failure when I'm with you. Everything matters because everything hurts someone somewhere as it is mattering. Migratory patterns given to the love again. A way to end the secrecy of suffering. Cut a door in the wolf so we can retrieve our dead for a world that matters. We've been listening to C.A. Conrad read some new poems as part of Resurrect Extinct Vibration. I kind of wanted to ask you a philosophical question. As a lot of people in eco-poetics sort of look to decenter the human, and in a way it feels like your eco-poetics sort of centers or emphasizes the creative genius of the human. And I wondered if that was true, but I also wondered if, I know one of your practices when you're creating language sort of when you're in the field of the ritual itself is to write really fast to get ahead of your internal editor. So you're creating a language bank that later you'll sculpt poems from. If maybe the, how you considered that, that magical language that comes through, is that part of you? Is that, or is that coming through you from, from somewhere or someone else? I believe very strongly that we are instruments that uh, I mean, we've, we've heard artists of all kinds talk about this for many generations. The idea of the muse, spirits, Jack Spicer, the poet Jack Spicer would talk about this as well. I believe in it very strongly, and I have felt it. The very shapes of these new poems are evidence to me that I have a whole series of a whole host around me of spirits helping me build these poems. Mm. Because prior to 2000, so 2005 is when I began doing the rituals. Between 1975 and 2005, almost all of my poems are exclusively on the left margin of the page. But once I began doing these rituals, whatever these new spirits are that come in with that process, that entire process was forbidden to be on the left margin. I would actually feel ill, physically ill. And I start moving the lines around, and the more I would move them, the better I would feel. It was sort of their way of being like, no way are you going to have this left margin. Hmm. It's no more left margin. So they're sculpting them into like these glyphs, almost like these kind of, I don't know how else to say it, hmm. very mysterious shapes. Well, you, you talk about in some of your pedagogical work around how to do somatic poetry ritual, uh, something called thought loops. And then and when you get caught in a thought loop, you provide three possible techniques to get out of a thought loop. One is inhaling coffee grounds. One is flicking the tip of your nose. And, and the third is to thrash dance. And I was first just wanting to hear what a thought loop is. And then if you could talk maybe a little bit about the interventions that you do and, and how or why you think they they work in getting you out of a thought loop. And again, this is in the context of, of speed writing. Yeah, so when you mentioned the writing uh, ahead of the editor, so when I'm inside the ritual, the thing that I most want to do is get myself into this place where I'm trusting myself inside the ritual. 
And once I have developed that trust with the ritual and myself inside of it, I begin writing. But still to this day, very often, you know, and these mind loops come from uh, whatever's going on in your life at the time, something that's happening or something that you need to be focused on. And you just can't stop thinking about it and you can't stop writing about it. Those are problems. And the way I deal with it is, well, these are techniques that just have worked for me. So I was looking about the fact that when you go to where perfume is sold or sometimes where there's a wine tasting, they'll have coffee beans or coffee grounds for you to sniff because it, it resets your, it recalibrates your olfactory nerve system. And it does. It's pretty successful. What I found out that in, with mind loops is that it also throws you out of your mind loop, smelling the coffee. Mm. But sometimes the mind loop is more pernicious and needs more intervention. So then the second one would be to sit with your feet flat or stand with your feet and stare at a stationary object in front of you and then begin flicking the tip of your nose. And what that does is it also resets the olfactory, but also there's touch involved. And also if you do it, you notice that it disrupts your visual pattern. So there's like a vibrational thing that goes mm. – because the flicking goes all the way up the cartilage of your nose and it disrupts your, your eyes. There's like a, a, like a vibration that you see everything. Like if you do it, anybody listening can do it now. Just flick your nose like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, also and, in acupuncture, it's used to, to restore consciousness. Oh, I didn't know so, that. Yeah. Wow. So – well, I'm telling you, if the if the coffee grounds don't work, flicking your nose generally does work. But sometimes that doesn't work. And thrash dancing, kicking those legs, the psoas muscle that connects your knees and around to the back of your spine and which holds together behind your spine, that's a, those are a series of muscles that contract us when we're in danger or scared, the shaking of the knees. This, uh, many researchers now believe, is the seat of PTSD. So there's an exercise called Trauma Release Exercise, TRE, that you can see videos of that you can release trauma from the body. And once again, we have privileged the brain for too long. Uh, the mind and the body have never been separate. We should have never, never separated them in our conversations. They should be talked about as one thing. The brain is the body. Mm. And the body is part of the brain. And the body holds memories as well as the brain tissue. So, yeah, I mean, it's just very exciting to understand that. And then so if you have a very serious mind loop problem, kicking and dancing will throw you far outside of that loop. Hmm. Well, and also there's not just these two phases. There's not the phase where you're doing a speed handwritten writing to generate language under the spell of the ritual. And then later with the editor mind starting to sculpt the poems. There's this intermediary phase where you're transcribing the handwritten notes onto the computer, but you're interrupting the transcription with speed typing with the uh, screen off. So yes. you can't see what you're typing. And so there'll be a little period of transcription, then some speed writing, speed typing, then more transcription, then more speed typing. Talk to us about what that is achieving as sort of a uh, middle space before you start um, working on poems. Well, that comes from reading about research on the brain. I love reading about these things in uh, medical journals, science journals. Uh, unfortunately, some of it is uh, military-funded, that kind of non-creepy information. But being able to understand now what an actual memory is, 
like they're not abstract they're physical things a memory in the brain so once we realize that um that these are real places you go to well once you understand that it makes it very exciting then because when i start transcribing these notes the handwritten notes i will stop and then do some speed typing where i close my eyes shut the screen light off and type as fast as i can what's happening is as i'm looking at the notes that i've taken from the ritual i'm remembering the ritual i'm remembering making these marks on the page with handwriting and then that floods my my brain chemistry so that when i'm doing the the speed typing again with my eyes closed and the screen light off what's happening is it's compounding the information around those notes mm. so it becomes the the magic of that that language on the other side of that internalized editor that wall once you get around it this cruising speed you can hit with the with the writing just opens up mm. Th- thinking about your your ethos of needing to find your body and in turn find your planet in order to find your poetry to connect one's personal story to a larger cultural and ecological one, it does make me think of our mutual love of Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh, yeah. Someone who shares many of your concerns. And we were corresponding over the last several months. I was heading to Dublin for the Hugo Awards for the book that I did with Ursula. And you were heading to London to work on a project in tribute to the 50th anniversary of Left Hand of Darkness. So maybe hoping you could just take a moment and tell us a little bit about what she has meant to you and what you were doing around the project. And actually it's in Dundee in Scotland um, where they're doing the exhibition at the museum there. And um, the piece I wrote for them for the exhibition is called memories of of Mem- uh, memories of why I stopped being a man. And it's the exhibition is focused on the left hand of darkness. It's a very unusual book for any of the listeners who have not read this book yet, I'm not a fan of novels, but that is one novel that I really do value and love. And it's a mysterious, amazing thing where there's genderlessness that is perplexing for many people. And um, it's very exciting to readers. And of course, there's a whole, you know, science sci-fi part of it. Of course, it's Ursula Le Guin. There's a lot going on. But that's the thing that I focus on the most about it. You're going to read at least part of Memories of Why I Stopped Being a Man for the bonus material. So we'll save it for that. But it is also 2019 the is the 50th anniversary of Left Hand of Darkness, but it's also the 35th anniversary of you choosing a genderless name. Yeah, I created the name C.A. Conrad in 1984. And that's part of what I wrote about with... Um, this piece for Ursula Le Guin, I decided to just personalize it, to just go right into experience. One of the things that I I loved about her was that she didn't just center brown, black, and queer protagonists, and at the same time decenter humans within sort of a, within a greater non-human ecological system, but that she even approached objects, uh, natural or human-made, that we would normally consider inanimate as dimensional, as holders of history and memory. And it made me think of this really wonderful interview you did at Entropy called Dinner View that looked at your relationship to food. And you opened that conversation with a story about dinner plates, how you had an art teacher that stood up for you against the homophobic bullies who urged you to take a ceramics class where you made plates. Mm -hmm. And then the teacher invited you over for dinner where you ate a meal 
together on the plates you had made. Yes. And I was, just wanted to maybe hear a little bit more about that experience. As it seems, I mean, Nachi is the word, and it's sort of cliche, but it sounds very poetic, the way this is all this all. I feel evolved. very, oh, it was, and I'm so glad you brought that up. I feel very fortunate to have worked with Ms. R. Um, R was short for um, Rohrbach, and um, I'm, I'm not positive about this, but I think she was part Jewish, which is a big deal for where I was going to school, where I was growing up. There were no Jewish people around. She was already an outsider, is my point. And she saw this bullying going on, and she used her position as a teacher to make it stop, and then insisted that I take this class and I make the plates. But she invites me over to her house, and she makes me a meal that she knows I've never had before. And it's a meal that's probably very common to most people, but it was pita bread, which I'd never heard of pita bread before then, with hummus and and this type of vegetables. And it was very like, just amazing. I just she wanted me to understand that there's a bigger world waiting for me outside this dirty little illiterate country town. And f- food appears often in your poems and in many of your poetry rituals, including your your first poetry ritual is a food centric yeah. ritual, but it also, um, was hoping you would talk about some of the things that you do as food rituals outside of your poems. One being the sleep magician, mm-hmm. uh, the quick baked <clears throat> cornbread and the other, your daily practice of consuming mushrooms and the unexpected side effects that has for you or side benefits that has for you. Right, the mushrooms that I consume are well. I'm not. I do, they're not psychedelic. Um, nothing against that. It's just they're not. It's a more practical consumption of the fungus. There's reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail. These are mushrooms that I consume every day <clears throat> in powder form, and I have for a long time now consuming them every day, a couple of years, and what's happened is. Well, okay, so I'll tell you, I'll just give you an example of what's been happening. What we now know about mushrooms is that they are, they're, they're, found, they're the foundation of all life on this planet in many ways. The mycelium, that sort of root system that they have, uh, completely uh, um, comes at a crossroads with every other type of plant and their root systems and helps sugars be transported and then water systems and then there's like a give and take on both ends. <clears throat> Getting back to uh, the biologist Lynn Margulis who gave us this great study on bacteria. She is an evolutionist but she flies in the face of the neo-Darwinists. The Darwinists want us to believe it's a big war and she believes the complete opposite. That the largest leaps in evolutionary history have always been through interspecies cooperation. And the mushrooms are a big uh, example of that. Mm. And so I was consuming these mushrooms every day for a very long time. And then I was house-sitting for a friend, and I arrived at the house. Somebody had been house-sitting for three weeks prior to my arrival. When I arrive, I feel dread. And I couldn't understand what this was about at first. And then I'm looking around and I realize, oh my God, the plants. This person had been here three weeks prior to me. Had They had not watered the plants at all. 
And so the succulents and the cacti were fine, but there were the, the, the other plants, the temperate zone plants, like the basil, the leaves were vertical. I mean, it was just really scary looking. The ground was cracked and dry. So, and I immediately went and grabbed for this glass watering container and I heard a voice say, lukewarm water, which I thought was very strange. But I made sure it was lukewarm water. I put selenite crystals against the pots, different things to help. And they did, they did rebound. But as I'm waking up the next morning, this voice returns and explains how if I had been later, the basil plant probably would have died. And that there was also this message about how the stronger plants around the basil plant were giving it a sort of vibration to help it hold on. And I kind of was thinking about what that meant and I kind of got a message that it was none of my business what that meant. So then I just, I realized this is the mushrooms. This is the connection that I'm making through the consumption of the mushrooms. This, this being able to understand and hear the plants. I don't know whether I was hearing the plants or the mycelium. Something was going on. And partially because mushrooms are the communication intermediary across species of, of trees. everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they belong to every aspect of why we are even here breathing. I read that you're working on a, a vegan cookbook poetry mm -hmm. ritual project mm -hmm. yeah. as well. Could you speak a little bit about the vegan cookbook? Right. Well, it's a vegan cookbook I've been working on for a long time. I've, But since I cured this depression that I had after my boyfriend was murdered... I started eating healthier. I've been vegan, but I was eating kind of like vegan junk food, which is not good for you. And so I've radically changed the recipe so there's none of that vegan butter and cheese and just make them healthier. But also each recipe has a somatic poetry ritual, so you're writing a poem while you're cooking. Wow. So at the end of each recipe, you'll have something delicious to eat and uh, a delicious poem. That's going to really work for me. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, but before we end, I wanted to talk about the role of anger in mm -hmm. your work. Yeah. You've said that about the time of the AIDS crisis, that there's only one thing that you miss about that time, and it is the anger. You say, we queers were so angry back then, and we were not taking shit from anyone anywhere. You would have never convinced me in the 80s or 90s that my 2010 gays would be putting rainbow stickers on machine guns on behalf of the United States military. So I, I was curious about what do you do with anger now? And likewise, given that you don't consider yourself a dark green, an no. environmentalist who thinks it's too late, what do you do with despair or even hopelessness in the face of ecological collapse and the rise in uh, anti-LGBT legislation. Um, so I know it's a big question, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about anger and despair in relationship to ritual and poetry for you. Well, thank you for asking. This is something that's on my mind often. Uh, I believe that you can be angry out of love. For instance, when uh, a friend of mine, when I was a teenager, who this friend was also a teenager, was in the hospital dying of AIDS in the 80s, and I come into the room, and uh, I said, why are you crying? And they said, well, the doctor just was in here and said, uh, well, this is what happens when you party too hard. And I hunted that doctor down in the hospital, and I screamed at him. And he said, I'm going to call security, and I just stepped forward 
with my eyes locked and I said, you go right ahead. I will have 50 friends here at the steps of this hospital and we will not leave until you are fired. And he left me alone. Hmm. That is the kind of anger that you need. And you need the friends to back it up. And that's different than a kind of wanton or misanthropic anger. Uh, misanthropes are not amusing to me. I believe that they are just unexamined lives that are then wantonly um, inflicting pain on everybody around them or just not being able to see anything beyond their own pain. That's different. You need to have a kind of anger that I'm talking... The kind of anger I'm talking about is the kind that I prefer to have, where it's out of love and respect and wanting the better changes to be made for everybody around me. Well, we didn't talk about all the dimensions of resurrect extinct vibration, the memorials you do for roadkill, the index cards you place to start correspondences with people in the voices of extinct animals. Um, But you've said that you didn't want the ritual to end on gloominess. And I've read that you have dreams of potentially outfitting a car with solar panels and also some other things with shelves of seedlings in the car. But I I just wanted to hear whether it's about that or about other things, what you have in mind for the final year of your project um, to not have it end on a gloomy note, to have it somehow be about, as you say, falling in love with the world, not only again, but as it is. That's essential. The thing that I have learned the most in doing this ritual about ex- with extinct animal sounds is that we desperately need to look at the world the way it is right now and fall in love with it all over again to be able to go forward. We're not going to get these creatures back. There were about 2 billion people when I was 5 years old and now there are eight, almost 8. And that's amazing. It's breathtaking when you think about that. We have to understand that this is the way it is. This is the world the way it is. If we're going to live in the past and be depressed about that, we're not going to be able to move forward. And so what are some of the rituals? I know that you spoke yesterday at PNCA about the revival of the chestnut, for instance. Yeah. I also want to thank everybody at PNCA who brought me here, Jay and Daniela, and all the amazing students as well who helped coordinate things. It's really great. And you, thank you for having me here. The chestnut, the American chestnut tree is a resource that has been taken away from us generations ago in the United States. It was such an essential part of the American story that all of the great artists of the 17th and 18th and 19th century would have paintings and drawings. Winslow Homer, I showed one of his drawings. But there was a a blight that the settlers who went into the Appalachian Trail to, to live brought uh, over 100 years ago. And this, this, this tree used to stretch from Canada to Florida. There were literally many billions of these trees and they were massive. And they all died in a year. The entire forest died. And with the death of that species of tree went many species of insects, plants, and other kind of animals because they depended upon the nuts of this tree and the blossoms of this tree. 
In fact, researchers have said that um, nut-eating creatures like raccoons and squirrels and deer, they will choose the American chestnut 100 to 1 over acorns because of the impact of its nutritional value. So the sad news is that um, it has been missing for over a century, that entire range of tree. But the good news is somebody thought to plant these in Wisconsin, and this is why we still have the American chestnut tree. But when they try to regrow those nuts uh, into seedlings uh, to get them into be adult trees and produce nuts, they don't go beyond five years. About five years, they they develop the sores on this bark, and then they die. But the Chinese chestnut tree is a stronger version of the chestnut tree. The Chinese scientists have helped us with making a hybrid of the Chinese-American chestnut tree. And for the first time now, we are seeing the American chestnut tree, with the help of the Chinese chestnut tree, live beyond five years into maturity and give a healthy harvest of the nuts. So we're going to be able to now see for the first time the American chestnut tree come back, thanks to the help of um, people researching with the Chinese chestnut tree. And you're going to play a role in your journeys. I want to have these nuts and I want to go, the, the new hybrid nuts, and I want to go around the United States. And then I, when I say hybrid, this is not GMO. No, this is different. And, um, I, uh, and, but I want to convince people to plant these in their yard and give them a little piece of paper that tell them how to take care of the tree and bring them back. Well, let's finish with a couple more poems. How about For the Feral Splendor That Remains and... Okay. And the clam soup poem. So this poem is titled, For the Feral Splendor That Remains, for Kazim Ali. Sometimes I strain to hear one natural sound. When gender blurs in a poem, my world sets a tooth in the gear. If God is in me, when will I ask for my needs to be met? Every God is qualified. It's not such a secret. When I was afraid of the road, I learned to drive. Map says name of your city and ocean, line drawn to it, towing behind the big party. History of life on Earth might be interesting to a visitor one day. Chewing parsley and cilantro together is for me where forest meets meadow. In a future life, would we like to fall in love with the world as it is? with no recollection of the beauty we destroy today. And the second poem is very brand new, and it's called, it's titled, Clam Soup Was the Name of a Cat Who Was Mean to Everyone But Me, for Dara Wire. To have a good death, I choose to take no advice. No one screwing their way into my socket. I will have no regrets to bore everyone with on my deathbed. Whenever my heart is a burning building, I throw myself out the window, knock down the door, get out, get going. I only eat vegetables, so I am never impatient for the cow to make ice cream. Leave that cow alone. Get out, get going. Too many people sitting around using the word hope for us to get anything done around here. 
Always remember you come from people who shower after work, my grandfather told me. I promised to never forget and promised myself to rebuff the whiskey he loved. Makes me glad to think of falling in love with making the letter G as a kid. G, 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 curve and return. G, G, G. All I wanted for Christmas was an x-ray of my hand making G, G, G. Pleasure and forms united in a life I choose to love with no matter what. Waking to the animal embraced. I have been asleep for many years and do not know these celebrities you speak of, Ichabob Crane told me. They are the names of poets, I told him, and they belong to the world in a way that is honest until it terrifies me. Many thanks, all my love. C.A. Conrad, thank you so, so much for being thank on the you, show. Thank you, David, and thank you for everybody at PNCA who brought me here. We were talking today to the poet C.A. Conrad, listening to some of his poems from his latest project, Resurrect Extinct Vibration. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of C.A. Conrad's work at caconrad.blogspot.com, and you can find their new show, Occult Poetry Radio, at opr88.blogspot.com. For the bonus audio archive, Conrad reads Memories of Why I Stopped Being a Man, a three-part essay emerging from three quotes from Ursula K. Le Guin and resulting in three poems. This joins supplemental material by Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, Danielle Jose Older, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, Ted Chang, Carmen Maria Machado, Tommy Pico, John Keane, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.